Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 18. Today, we're joined by Donnie Vincent, adventure bow hunter and filmmaker most well known for his 2013 epic whitetail film, The River's Divide. And in this episode, we're going to be chatting about some of Donnie's greatest adventures and discuss how he's chased whitetails and other big game through some of the most extreme conditions and circumstances that hunting can throw you. This is one of my favorite interviews we had yet, so sit back and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. With me this afternoon, as always, is my co-host, Dan Johnson, and joining us is a special guest today, Donnie Vincent. Welcome to the show, Donnie. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're thrilled to talk with you, and there's going to be some, some pretty interesting things I know we're going to discuss that I can't wait. But first off, you know, how are you this afternoon? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on pins and needles here. I leave on our, our next expedition here on August 15th. So it's, it's the point of no return within two weeks. It's running around and trying to shoot my bow every day in a common orderly fashion. And while trying to get gear together and fix cameras and fix gear. And so it's, it's getting down to the wire. And for some reason, this is always when we have gear failures. (laughs) Yeah. The, the never ending to do list gets worse when, when gear starts taking a crap, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it, it it completely does. So, but I'm good. I'm excited. We're, uh, you know, this summer went really fast, and I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's, it's, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, thank you. And you know, over the past few years, kind of kicking things right off here, you know, you've released you know several incredible films documenting your hunts, and I'm sure probably this next expedition you're going on, you're going to be filming some pretty neat, neat things too. Uh, most notably, uh, for a lot of our listeners at least, last year's release, The Rivers Divide, um, was was a film that a lot of people were talking about. And so we're excited to talk about that film and talk about that hunt you had for an incredible whitetail out there in the Badlands. And of course, we want to talk strategy and tactics. But before all of that, you know, I would love to understand a little bit about you know how you got into hunting and hunting deer and all of that in the first place, and then maybe how that all led up to what you're doing now with these different expeditions and the films and, and everything that comes with it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a very 
what I think is a non-traditional hunting background. You know, most most guys, their their mom or their dad hunted. Usually, the dad hunted, and and dad would take them out duck hunting, or or you know, they have their family deer camp or whatever, something along those lines. And it just wasn't that way for me. My father, um, he always appreciated the outdoors, and he did go and. And he'd hunt in northern Maine with, with some of his buddies, and I've heard some of the stories. And occasionally, actually, when um, when times are tough, my parents, for, for, for my birthday, occasionally my dad would give me a squirrel hunting trip, if you will, for my birthday, and, and he'd take me out squirrel hunting. And I really, I love that. And I remember sitting on logs with him and just drilling him with questions about deer and squirrels and this and that. And, you know, some of the times he had the answers and some of the, and most of the times he just would say, man, I don't know, you know, that's a good question. And so, you know, that's kind of where I, you know, I, I honestly, I think my, my hunting heritage is just in my genes. I think, I actually think it's in all of us, um, you know, going back to being hunters and gatherers, I think everyone from the president of PETA uh, to the, the most staunch anti-hunter or animal rights activist today, uh, nobody would be here unless you come from an ancestor that's a strong hunter. Uh, and that's, that's a point of fact. So I think so true. sometimes we all have a difficult, yeah, I think we have a difficult time explaining it and we want to use conservation as an excuse, if you will. And that, and it is a big piece of hunting and we want to use, you know, it's how we choose to feed our families as an excuse. And that's a big piece of it. But I think a lot of us struggle to describe kind of where, where we got our hunting heritage, but I, I think it's kind of deep down, but I'm getting a little too deep here, but, um, <laughs> You know, I, I hung out with my father. I saw that he had guns. He would take me hunting. It was, it was something that I was hardwired for. But um, when he was, when my dad was younger, his parents, my grandparents, got him a book subscription to Outdoor Life. And he got um, all of these books uh, written by Jack O'Connor and Elmer Keith and all these different old, old-style outdoor writers. And, man, I read those books from cover to cover. I can't even tell you how many times about doll sheep and grizzly bears and moose and um, just reading that stuff, I had it bad. I mean, I consider myself a sheep hunter since about the age of five or six, and wow. I was the only one in my family that even know what a, what a doll sheep was, but <laughs> I was just addicted to it. That's awesome. I think uh, I think a lot of us can relate to that type of thing, especially like you mentioned, um, you know, that primal deep down piece of all of us that that connects with being a hunter and you know i really do believe like you said it's it's the most human thing about us i think it's it's where we came from and it really is what it means to be you know the the beings that we are now so gosh but like you said we could get really deep with this and talk about that for probably an hour (laughs) but yeah and and i apologize these these are how most of my answers will go because i probably talk too much well I, I, (laughs) I, i love where we're started already that's awesome um, now that said, before we get any deeper on any of these topics, whether it be philosophical or, or strategy, we do like to start every one of our interviews on a little bit of a lighter note and throw a curveball on occasion. So Dan, this is, uh, your usual job. So I'll let you talk to Donnie here about whatever crazy question might be on your mind today. All right, Donnie, uh, I'm just going to let you know, this is probably going to be the hardest question you'll ever have to answer with anybody in the industry. Okay. If they ask you, this is going to be the toughest one. All right. There's a little bit of a buildup, but I'll keep it, uh, I'll keep it short because I'm a, I'm a talker too, but you're, you know, you've, you've had a hard day at work. All right. You and your buddies, you know, you're going to go out to a bar for a cold one. 
All of a sudden, the lights go down low. There's a glow from the front of the room. There's a karaoke machine, okay? You are forced to sing one song. What song are you going to sing? Oh, do I, uh, okay. I can tell you what song I'm probably going to sing, but I'm not going to sing it well. But it'd probably be, oh, it'd probably be Simple Man, I would imagine, by Oof. Leonard Skinner. Oh, yes. Love that song. That is a great answer. That is a that's great, a great answer. answer. That that's that's okay, probably the song. Again, you're not gonna, you're gonna not gonna confuse it with Leonard Skinner or Shine Down, but um, but it'll be that. Song. <laughs> okay, so it's my All turn, right, right, Dan? Your turn. Yeah. Your turn. Um, I think I <laughs> I don't know. Um. You know, a song, the, the first thing that came to my mind here when you said this actually happened, I actually had a similar situation a little bit. It was my first day on a summer internship in college with this big company. And the first day of the job, it was like a social event. And they took us out golfing and then back to a bar and they had us do karaoke. And of course, I was the intern. I was like 19 years old. And they oh, said, yeah. you got to go up first. So I went up there and I sang Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue by Toby Keith. And I I kind of nailed it. So I think that's what I'll stick with. (laughs) (laughs) I nailed it. (laughs) And there's no video proof, so we'll just go with nailed it. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, if there was proof, I wouldn't be saying that. (laughs) Myself, I have a a go-to song. Every time. And whether there's a karaoke machine there or not, I'm typically singing along with it, um, is David Allen Coe, You Don't Have to Call Me Darling. Mm, nice. <laughs> David Allen Coe. Going in the yep. good old country. Right, right on. There. Yep, right on. Well, this is great. If we ever do end up at a bar in some random town, we know exactly what we're going to be hitting on the karaoke machine. This is great. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right on. We know. We got it That's great. Oh, always leave it to you, Dan, for some good questions there. But now, well, we better get talking about whitetails or something other than this, right? Yeah, I think so. So, you know, Donnie, as I mentioned, you've been hunting and filming across North America in some of the most extreme environments, and you know, some incredibly tough circumstances. I just from the films I've seen and from trailers for those films, I can tell you've been in, in some pretty gnarly spots and you've had some pretty incredible experiences. So with all that being the case, I wanted to focus today on how you hunt under such tough conditions and kind of see if we can piece together some different lessons learned from your different hunts, from some of your stories, and see what from those experiences we can apply back to our own hunts here uh, for whitetails or whatever it might be. And, you know, when I started thinking about this topic, I got to thinking about a really great example of this, and that was your first film, or the first film I saw from you being The River's Divide, in which you were hunting a single buck named Steve, which I always get a kick out of, and you were hunting him in North Dakota. So maybe if we could take a look at this hunt as an example to get us kicked off, could you maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, this hunt for Steve and that story, and then we'll take it from there? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um and, just, and to give you a tiny bit of background, I've been hunting this ranch for 10 years. I've killed um, uh, something like seven or eight deer. I think I'm at eight deer off the ranch prior to the year that I started hunting Steve. And, uh, and, and a friend of mine was, was working out there several years ago. And we ended up, you know, we see a lot of good deer on this ranch, but basically a really good deer on this ranch was a four, five, 
five or six year old whitetail, and they'd usually be somewhere around 100, 140 inch A pointers. It was it was relatively rare to find a 10 pointer, and so that's kind of the deer that we always we always went after. And and sometimes they'd have kickers and stickers, and it was really cool. But the place is just insanely beautiful. And then and one day we just saw this three year old, and he was a nice 10 pointer. And so we just made a remark of it that. You know, he's just a really nice deer, and we hadn't really named him yet. And we, we, and we didn't do a lot of deer naming, but we just, you know, kind of to kind of talk about a particular buck. We, you know, we would just come up with some sort of little anecdotal note for him. But um, then, and, and then when he turned, when he went to four and a half, uh, that's when he got the name Steve. My friend Jeff Moygan gave him the name. I uh, named him after a buddy of his who, who kind of thought naming deer was stupid but it was, it was a long and funny story but we we saw him and you know at four and a half we we're like man he's he's a pretty good deer and and we're talking western north dakota and he's probably 155 inches at that point and funny little story i was in the same little clearing where uh i had my encounter with steve uh when he was four years old and i was sitting in the same clearing in a little double bowl in a, a little different area of the clearing than the same clearing and I ended up having Steve come out and walk in front of me in December. And at that point, he would have been my biggest bow kill. And I grabbed my bow. I saw him. I knew it was him right away because he had bladed G2s. I saw him. I knew it was him. And I was like, man, this is going to be my biggest bow kill to date. I'm really excited. And he just kind of stood there in front of me in the grass. And um, for whatever reason, I was just like, man, we rarely see deer like this on this ranch, you know, with this much potential. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to see what he's going to blossom into. I set my bow down, and I thought, you know, hopefully he makes it through winter. Hopefully he doesn't get eaten by a mountain lion. And so I let him walk. And wow. uh, and it's not to be, a, you know, a great a great part of the story is to let him walk when he was four and a half. And, and uh, fast forward, I didn't end up going to the ranch because I was just busy and I was in another place. So I didn't end up making it back to the ranch when Steve would have been five. But I talked to the family, you know, occasionally throughout the winter and stuff, and they and they had a couple other bull hunters, a couple of family members that hunted there and stuff, and and they say, man, there's a deer, there's a deer across the river that guys keep seeing, and I heard kind of rumors that a few guys had missed him at, you know, 30 and less yards, and and so they said, you know, he's he's a pretty good deer, and and so then I heard that, and then I went out to the ranch again when he would have been six, and that was the year that the Rivers Divide started. And, um, I literally, I say this in the film and if nothing in our films is ever contrived or made up or embellished or, or, um, you know, drama created, we just kind of tell it like it is. And when we have a bad day, we have a bad day. If I miss, I miss, if I have, you know, it's, we, we just kind of lay it out there and, and I'll never forget. I set trail cameras up over there. I was kind of hoping to get a decent deer and we were getting, again, we were getting a nice five-year-old on camera over there. An eight-pointer, probably go 135, 138 inches, but a big mature buck, gorgeous. And then all of a sudden, one day in the broad daylight, boom, we got the photo. And those are the photos that you see in the film. Mm -hmm. And I saw that bladed G2, and I was just like, oh, my word, Steve. You know, because you, you just anticipate through blue tongue or drought or mountain lions or a hard winter, you just figure that, you know, this deer that you, you know, no, quote unquote, no. You just figure he's not going to show up. He's dead or he's moved on, whatever. He can go anywhere he wants. It's a huge property. 
And uh, lo and behold, there he was. So uh, we were just flabbergasted to see him on film. And as soon as we saw him, you know, the strategy started. The, 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 oh, my God, okay, now we've got, you know, this, this instant story just fell out right in front of us. And so now we had to grab this and to grab this subject matter, this storyline, and, and run with it. And so that's what we did. And it turned out to be a heck of a story, that's for sure. I I know, Dan, you've seen the film too, and I've I've watched the film twice now, just again recently, and it's it is a compelling it's a story that people can connect with, and it's a story, you know, through the ups and downs and some really tough times and some tough conditions, but you know, in the end it's amazing how it all turned out. And and I love that. Now, you know, as we as I mentioned in the beginning really want to focus on the, the tough conditions or struggles that you've had along the way and how you push through them. And so just, you know, from my own experience watching the film, it seemed like you've dealt with, you know, some tough weather, hunting through snowstorms and things. It looked like you, you know, struggled with issues like having to hunt him two years, having the mishap, you know, that, that first year when you got the shot at him. Can you talk to us a little bit about maybe what you think that greatest challenge was that you encountered over the, you know, several years you had hunting that buck and then maybe, you know, what you – you know, what you learned as you push through that challenge? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry. Like I said, I always digress because my mind kind of waters and I get all over the place. But yeah, by far, um, by far the biggest challenge with hunting Steve was the fact that he was a six and a half year old whitetail. And the fact that he had really, really good instincts and the fact that he didn't move unless he really felt it necessary for him to move. And so, um, obviously, I don't know exactly where Steve spent his days, but basically, as a six and a half year old whitetail, he laid in a bed most of the day. You know, most of the pictures we'd get um, would be in the middle of the night as he was passing through to go eat or get a drink of water. Um, and so, the biggest challenge was being over there because we have to we have to be there hunting to create opportunity. And so, it was being over there. But being over there with the right wind and trying to just get those two opportunities, if you will, those two elements to, to have an intersection. So we'd, we'd literally sit on the, um, on the north side of the river. He was on the south side of the river, and we'd sit there and just wait for the wind to be right. And then when it was, we'd slip over there and hunt. And, you know, obviously 99% of the time he wouldn't show up. And so it was just kind of that struggle of waiting for the right wind and then slipping over there to hunt him. And, um, and I'll be honest with you in the second year that we hunted him, um, I used what I would call to be a cheater tactic. And it's not something that I, it's, it's not that I'm not proud of it. It's not that I'm proud of it. I like backing off the technology. I like backing away from technology a little bit when I'm hunting. Obviously I still shoot a modern compound bow with all the, with all the goodies and things like that. But I, in the second year, I ended up starting to use Ozonics in our ground blind. We built a ground blind specifically for Steve because the trees where we were hunting, and you can see from the first year, um, the trees are just really small. They're nearly dead. It was really tough to get on them in a tree stand. And so um, the highest we could get were 10 or 12 feet. So we built this really cool ground blind. It was a buddy of mine's, and we just kind of built it up. And we started using Ozonics, and that made, um, you know, that made all the difference in the world. I'd love to tell you that it was my hunting prowess that 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 kept us over there. But what kept us over there was, um, you know, we had the mental fortitude, but we had the confidence that 
our O2 molecules are being converted into O3 molecules, which are virtually, they're not scent free, but, you know, the deer, at least there, didn't seem to react to them. So that, that was a little, you know, a little trick that we kept in our basket. But, you know, it, it was mental perseverance. We enjoyed it. We kept going and, and having that little trick in our bag, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And me and Mark, yeah, me and Mark both use Ozonics. So we know, we know what you're talking about there. And I have, just so you know, just so your listeners know, I have no affiliation with Ozonics. If they call Ozonics tomorrow and said, hey, yeah, we heard Donnie Vincent's interview, they'd say, who? I have, you know, I purchased my <laughs> Ozonics. I, they, they, I'm not on this Christmas list, I promise you. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's funny that you mention all that um, because I actually just posted an article last week on Wired Hunt about, you know, Ozonics. And there was a recent test done by a writer for Field & Stream which proved that Ozonics seemed to work pretty well. And so I threw my two cents in as well, not affiliated with Ozonics at all. But actually it was Dan who had been using Ozonics, man, maybe four or five years ago, who convinced me to finally try it. And I was really skeptical. I finally did try it. And, you know, again, I I can't speak to the technology. I can't speak to the safety. I can't speak to anything except for the fact that my own personal experiences with it it's it's proven to me beyond a doubt that I need and want to have one of those units with me whenever I go out deer hunting now because I've just seen it help me. Not saying it's perfect, but I've seen it help me so many times that you know my uh, for me seeing was believing. Um, but it's definitely yeah. one of those topics that a lot kind of gets people talking and riles people up because some people you know love to hate on technology like that and and that's okay. Um, but hey, here's three guys right here that have that have been happy with it, so it's something to think about. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work. Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. 
Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Yeah, you know, it's for us, and you can call it lazy, call it whatever you want, but we drive, you know, all that way. And again, we loved going, but we drive all that way. You know, it's money. We're filming. We're trying to put this film together. It's all these things. So I just tried to put, you know, there's a, a, a little trick in our basket to try to increase our hours spent in the blind. We love sitting, um, but when the wind is wrong, the wind is wrong. So we were just trying to increase our hours over there and the opportunity. And it happens to, it just happens to be that the, the second time we ended up seeing Steve, uh, the wind was blowing directly from us to him, just absolutely straight in line. So, um, and, and, you know, it's, and he still walked by. So, wow. Yeah. That'll, um, that'll help you feel comfortable with that technology when you see something like that happen. That's for sure. So you mentioned a lot of hours, you know, sitting out there hunting and stuff. So let's talk about that. Um, you know, it comes to hunting whitetails and it sounds like you've had some experience over there in the Dakotas and, and maybe elsewhere too. How do you handle those long hunts, whether it be days on end or maybe a full day on stand or in a blind? Do you have any tricks or experiences that have um, maybe given you some kind of advice that you could share with the readers about how to just to push through and, and persevere through intense amounts of hunts or length of hunts? Yeah, um, and I'm going to be a terrible guy to talk to about this. And all I, my friends, some of my buddies rag me about this a little bit, but <laughs> almost always when I hunt, other than early season, I almost always starting, you know, mid October, whatever, if I'm hunting deer, um, I sit dark to dark and, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm used to spending, uh, ridiculously long hours on stand or in a ground blind. I don't often hunt from a ground blind, but when I do, it's, there's just long days. And I just like, um, I just like being out there. I like taking as stealthy approach as I can to get out there. And I like knowing that when the afternoon, this is going to sound so silly, but I like knowing that when the afternoon rolls around, I didn't go out and get lunch or whatever and then come back in. You know, when you come back in in the afternoon, this is me personally, when I come back in and climb up into my tree, you know, I'm sitting there going, man, did something see me? Did something hear me? Did, did something happen? Whereas when I stay there all day, you know, A, you know, as the afternoon rolls around, I'm already in there. I'm quiet. I'm set up. But B, I cannot tell you, and I'm sure if you talk to any serious deer hunters like Lee Lakoski or Adam Hayes or any of these guys, I cannot tell you the amount of deer that I've seen, including big, huge trophy box uh, in the middle of the day. I personally have arrowed two or three different big box um, around the noon hour, noon, one o'clock, something like that. And I used to hunt a place in Illinois that had fantastically huge deer. And, you know, this was an, uh, an outfitted operation. I was one of the only, the few guys that sat all day. And I, I, every time when I come in for dinner at night, you know, all the guys would be like, Hey, did you see anything in the middle of the day? Cause they kind of wanted some validation of that. They came in and watched football. And, um, <laughs> and it was really funny cause I, I hunted this place for like three years before I realized that they actually served lunch at the lodge in the middle of the day. <laughs> 
That's but awesome. I would come in and they'd say, do you see anything? You know, and I would, but I, I really enjoy hunting. I really enjoy sitting there. And I don't know if it's that I convince myself that I only have a short time left, but um, basically whenever I go to a place, whether it's three days, five days, 14 days, I just say, hey, I'm only here for 14 days. I'm here for 10 days. I have to make the most of this. So I'm here to put all of my eggs and just, you know, I'm here to push it to the limit and try to be as successful as I possibly can. And that's, that's it just drives me. I I love it. I love what you're saying, Donnie. I think we're cut from the same cloth. I am, all my friends think I'm nuts too. A lot of my buddies here that I hunt, you know, locally here in Michigan and stuff, all think I'm crazy as I'll get out for hunting 14 hours straight. But like you said, when it, for me, I feel like I'll feel, I'll be upset at myself if I feel I haven't done every single possible thing I can possibly do to make sure this hunt is a success. And if I'm not out in the woods for several hours in the middle of the day or spook a deer walking in the afternoon or whatever it is, you know, I put that on myself. So now for me though, I usually don't start doing that until the end of October and I'll usually end of October through November. That's the type of thing I do, but it's interesting to hear that you start that a little bit earlier, but, but yeah, it's, it's tough. Well, it's, it, yeah, I, I do if I get the opportunity to hunt. Now, with the nature of how I hunt and the things that I enjoy to hunt, usually August, September, and most of October, I'm in the mountains. So it's it's rare that I'm actually even hunting whitetails early in the year. I'm usually in the mountains, but, but when I do get the opportunity to get out there, um, I like to sit there. I like to just kind of be out there and, and see what shakes out. Awesome. What do you think? Uh, what do you think about all this, Dan? Are you an all-day hunter? Um, typically my tree stands are set up for, uh, specifics like, uh, coming to a food source or going to a bedding area in the morning. I, I typically only hunt mornings or evenings unless it's a rut in a big old pinch point, then I'll be sitting all day. But for me, um, and just the way my property is, is laid out, um, I'm not, I'm not hunting all day because my stands are, are basically set specific. Fair enough. So that's just a, a complicated way of saying that you're kind of kind of weak when it comes to sitting all day. Is that what you're saying, Dan? <laughs> I I am sorry. I am a weaker man. No. <laughs> you but, know, I, I actually hunted with a guy in um, Kansas, and he had huge, huge, huge deer on his wall. At several, kind of a just a guy that kept to himself, but several one eight seventies, one eighties, a few one nineties, and he would like he would sit 90 minutes to 120 minutes at a time and i was i could not believe that when he told me that and basically his whole philosophy was he'd go in there and he he always set up his stands to where he, like his stands didn't even have seats he would go in there and he'd stand on his platform absolutely perfectly still not even look around just sit there still as a statue He's like, I can only do that for about two hours before I need to start moving. And he goes, and if I need to start moving, then I get down and get out of there because I just want to sit there absolutely perfectly still. And obviously he does his homework beforehand, but that guy killed several, and I mean several, huge, huge bucks, and that was his tactic. Wow. I love that. One of the things that me and Dan always talk about after these different interviews is that 
we hear from so many different people that are all having success killing you know big deer, mature deer, and they're all doing it in almost completely different ways. And it's, it's so neat to see that there's you know a lot of different ways to skin a cat um, or kill a deer in this case. And it's all about you know the right tactic for you and your style and what you know makes it still enjoyable for you. Um, but it's it's just fascinating to hear about the many different ways you can do this. Now, absolutely, yeah. Now, Dan, did you have uh, kind of on the same topic when it comes to extremes or anything like that? Any anything on this topic you wanted to run by by Donnie? Yeah, just a couple things. Um, one, and we'll use Steve as an example. Uh, you've hunted him a long time, and this is kind of a two part question. Going back to when you mentioned it, but first, first question is how hard was it for you to pass Steve? when you had your bow in your hand, you were getting ready to shoot him. And then you're just like, well, I want to see what he, uh, when he grows into, was that, was that a hard decision to make or was it fairly simple? Um, it was, it was a little bit of both. And and I'll say this in, uh, sometimes when I say this to people, they look at me and they say, man, I've been waiting a long time for somebody to say it back to me because it's how I feel. And sometimes when I say this to people, they look at me like I am blue. So <laughs> it, for me, killing an animal is a really big decision for me. Uh, when I actually come to full draw and I'm going for my trigger and I'm the guy that I actually consciously think I'm about to send an arrow through this deer's vitals, in 10 seconds this deer's life is going to be over with and it's going to be because of me. It's just that I just feel like it's a very big decision and if I'm going to have any regrets or I'm going to have any, if there's any question to any element of it, you know, I just won't do it. It's just not for me. I just won't do it just to say, hey, look at me. I'm in a photo. Look at me. I'm successful. Hey, you know, look at me. I killed something. I, I punched my ticket. I'm not one of those guys that I'll tell you all day long. I eat tags all the time. I have a bin in my basement full of unused <laughs> tags. And so when he was there in front of me, uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful, snowy winter day. It was uh, a little over 30 below zero, Oof. and I'd been sitting for like six hours, something like that. And so when he walked out, you know, everything warmed up. I grabbed my bow, you know, clicked my release on. It was go time. Like, I was about to shoot the biggest deer in my life, and like I said, he's probably 155 inches. And, uh, and I just kind of saw him standing there in the big snowflakes, and I was like, you know what? There's a chance there's a chance that he's going to, that he's going to make it. And I actually, rather than picturing myself dead behind Steve, I pictured telling my buddy who also knew Steve, I pictured telling him, Hey man, I saw Steve and I let him go. So it's going to be really fun for us to see what he looks like at five years old. And it kind of, that seemed more alluring to me than, than killing him. Does that make any sense at all? Makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. And I think the good thing about it is, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a conservation decision, but I I believe there's two different types of hunters out there. You know, you got your weekend warriors, your running gunners, the people who go out basically just for a kill. And then, and I consider myself the second one, which is more of a spiritual kind of a connect, connect with nature, doesn't have to kill to have a successful season type of hunter. And, um, when you, you know, when you just told me that, cause I don't think it shows it on the video of you passing him. I know you may mention it, but, um, showing that is kind of just, 
I don't know what words to use, but I'll just say awesome. I wish I would, you know, I just wish more hunters would kind of have that, um, that view on hunting. Yeah. And I agree. I think the animals that were hunting, uh, you know, we owe it to them. I don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, you know, went out and shot my limited mallards. I've, I've went to properties on, you know, doe intensive, um, weekends or doe intensive properties and shot four or five does in three or four days. And it's awesome. And I'm excited about it. And I, the meat is fantastic, but it's just when I'm there, um, you know, maybe I have a, a weird vision, but I'm there looking for a certain animal that's going to fill, you know, this experience for me. And that's what, um, you know, that it's, it's, I just think it's a really big decision. Um, and now, now my second question real quick is I, I'm a, I'm a huge believer that failure creates a learning opportunity, especially for, and me and Mark have talked about this all the time. You know, we fail a lot and then have to use that failure to, um, make the next move towards, you know, being a better hunter where can you give a specific, uh, time or, when you were hunting Steve or maybe a, another whitetail that you had a failure, but were able to learn from it? Oh my God. So, so many. I mean, my entire repertoire, my every call I use, every tree stand I use, the clothing I use, the bow I use, the arrow I use, every single thing that I use, every step I take when I hunt, is because of a previous failure, every single one. I mean, that the evolution of my gear alone of um, has has a, a affected has been affected by an absolute you know just a plethora of failures. If I was going to point, um, you want to know one lesson learned, one big lesson learned from myself. Yeah, is um. You know, I shot a mule deer. This is, oh, there's only a couple of guys that really know this story, but I arrowed a mule deer several years ago in Alberta. Uh, and uh, the gentleman that was guiding me on that hunt, because you have to be guided in, in Canada, the gentleman that was guiding me on that hunt is a, a mule deer expert, if you will, and I know, I know quite a bit about mule deer myself. But I uh, basically I arrowed a mule deer that I believe would have, uh, absolutely shattered the world record, the current typical world record. And I shot him in, um, I snuck up to about 35 yards and I got him. Um, I went in a little bit too fast and he stood up a little bit before I was ready. And I came to full draw and it was, it was probably about a 50 mile an hour win that day. And I shot and my arrow hit him back and through the guts. And, uh, it's a very long story, but, I ended up watching that deer tip over twice and I thought he was done. And, uh, and then I ended up watching him bed down cause I was way up on this coolie and I watched him bed down and through a series of conversations, I got talked into from the outfitter that I was with, I got talked into going down there and trying to get another arrow in him. Uh, you know, long story short, that deer got a big and fuse of, uh, you know, a big shot of adrenaline from, from uh, us going into that thicket and took off and we never saw him again. And, and that thing has haunted me uh, since the day it happened. I learned so much on that hunt of, you know, going in too fast. And I, you know, I made too much noise and, and he got to stand up. If I would have just taken my time and slipped in there, um, 
you know, I could have got in on him and, and he could have stood up naturally or whatever. But, I, yeah, I mean, I've learned. I can't even tell you how many mistakes I've learned. One of the reasons why I started hunting all day, I was hunting in Illinois one time, and, and I, I got a really upset stomach. I went back to the lodge, and I when, when I started feeling better, I was like, okay, I feel better. I'm going to head out to my tree stand. I went back out to my tree stand, and there's a, there a 10 or 12-point box that I would put at, you know, somewhere around the 180 mark, was curled up like a dog sleeping not 25 yards from my tree stand. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think of things like that, you know, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm never leaving a tree stand ever again. Literally never, ever again am I leaving a tree stand. <laughs> you know, and then, and then you know, my arrow hit Steve in the shoulder this, you know, the in the first part of the film. And so I started looking at arrow densities and arrow weights, and I started looking at momentum and penetration, not just kinetic energy. And, you know, all of these things, everything has that everything's been a learning Everything that I use is from from a, a failure, and I, I agree with you. Success, um, I believe, breeds laziness because you think you've nailed it. You think you've nailed it, and and um, and really, it's when you start missing the bullseye that you have to start problem solving, and that is where, you know, that's the mother of invention, and the, that's where you start to really find your true genius. I think. One of the one of the things you just mentioned there, Danny, um, the time where when you hit Steve in the shoulder. And you never recovered him. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you deal with a situation like that? Whether it be even the mule deer you shot, gut shot it, didn't find it. How do you handle a miss or a wounded deer like that, just mentally? And then how do you get yourself up and ready for the next hunt? Because I think that's something that almost every single, probably ninety nine point nine percent of deer hunters and any kind of hunter will eventually experience that. No matter how much they practice, no matter how much they try to do things right, things happen. So. How do you deal with that? Well, first of all, when you're like wounding a deer um, through a major cavity, or or even if you hit one in the leg and it's and you're finding a lot of blood or whatever, number one, hands down, I will, I refuse to do it any other way. Is I give them at least 24 hours. I hear guys say, "Oh, if I hit him in the liver, I'm going to give him six hours. If I hit him, you know." Here, I'm going to give him eight hours. If I hit him in the guts, I'm going to give him 12 hours. For me, it's 24 hours, period, end of story. Uh, and I learned that from that mule deer. I am a full believer that if we would have given that deer 24 hours, he'd be dead in that thicket. Um, but I got I got talked into going down there. You know, the outfitter said, oh, man, tonight coyotes are coming. They're going to scare him into the river. He's going to die in the river. He's going to sink. He's going to float away. You're never going to see him again. And I was talked into it, and it was because he wanted kind of that instant gratification of getting him right now. And so wounding a deer, my biggest advice, get rid of the 8 hours, the 10 hour, the 12 hour rule. If you wound a deer, give him 24 hours. You will never, ever regret it. Yes, coyotes might eat him or something like that, but I, just give him 24 hours. If you can slip in close to him, if you see him go down, you can slip in there and get another arrow on him, kill him quickly. Obviously, that, that trumps all, but... Um, you know, give the animals 24 hours. That's that's absolutely number one. And as far as wounding one, wounding one that you know lived um, with Steve, I was pretty sure he lived. I found out positively in that November is when I found out because they got they got pictures of him again. He started showing up again, walking on some of his old trails, and you know he looked fine. So, um, but right you know right after when it happened to Steve, that was my biggest white tail at the time, and. I was just really disgusting. I hated 
thinking about him being wounded. I hated thinking about him laying there in his bed in pain. And, and then I, I hated, you know, you don't get that many opportunities, especially as an archer, you don't get that many opportunities in a lifetime. And, and, uh, and so to blow it, it just, just made my heart sink, you know, and then with the mule deer, I'll be honest with you. I shot that mule deer. It's like September 8th or 9th, something like that. And I didn't touch my bow again until, uh, that December. I didn't even pick my bow up again. I just, stopped hunting that fall and I was just if you ask my wife she'll tell you it was it was really bad man I still think about that mule deer every single day every single day it pops in my head and so it's that's a tough thing to get over you kind of have to get past it you have to get over it if you do this long enough a deer will even if you are you know Levi Morgan a deer will move before your arrow gets there I'll guarantee you Levi has lost a deer um, and, and, you know, it's sometimes things happen, your arrows hit twigs and, and, you know, there's wind and this and that. So, you know, it's, everybody deals with it separately, wounding deer, but you know, that's a tough one to get over. But if you wound one and you believe it's a mortal wound to me, 24 hours, 24 hours, 24 hours, 24 hours. Some people say, Oh my God, it's going to rain or it's going to snow. I don't care. 24 hours. You can do a grid search, wait 24 hours. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever, and you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. 
Yeah, that's a tough one. That's that's something I always struggle with too. Like you mentioned in the situation, like if it's raining or snowing, you know, do you risk losing the blood trail or do you want to risk bumping the deer? And I, I think I've kind of settled on what you just said there too. I'd rather make sure he's close to the last known location. I know where he's at and done for sure so that you can do a grid search or something. But I don't know. Where do you stand on that one, Dan? Perfect example. Last year would have been my biggest buck to date. Well, I shot him quartering away, pretty hard quartering away. I felt the arrow was deep into his cavity. Um, I hit him right behind the, or a little bit behind the uh, um, back leg, but at the angle, it would have went into the chest cavity. It was right, almost right at the last rib going into the chest cavity. Um, I saw him walk off very slow at, uh, with about just the fletchings and the tip hanging out of his, uh, hanging out of the body and, um, walks very slow away. I, I went in probably two hours later and I, I grid searched 380 acres over a two day period and didn't find him. So yeah, I, that, that right there is definitely a learning experience and I agree with Donnie, every word he just said. It's a tough lesson to learn, but it sticks with you, I imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Now, something you said there, Donnie, a ways back, but it stuck with me. As you mentioned that, I think it was the day that you passed Steve the first time, you said it was negative 30 degrees, I think, or somewhere around there. Um, so I'm curious, when it comes to handling weather conditions like that, whether it be on a whitetail hunt in North Dakota where it's freezing cold or you're in the mountains chasing sheep, you know, how do you both mentally handle that kind of physical strain? And then, you know, what are you doing from a gear or physical perspective to be able to actually handle those kinds of conditions? Sure. Um, mentally is a big one, right? If you, um, I've never experienced this myself because whenever I'm in sheep camp, I'm there by myself or whatever. And, and um, uh, I think that, you know, it's, it's, um, you have to be mentally strong. Obviously you have to prepare prior to the hunt, get yourself as physically fit as you can. But 100% people talk about sheep shape. I don't know if white tail hunters, unless they're paying attention to mountain hunting, people say this term sheep shape. Well, I 100% believe that sheep shape lives between your ears and you just have to have this perseverance. You don't have to climb the next mountain right now. You don't have to hike 12 miles right now. You just have to be willing to take one more step. I think you need to have that mental fortitude of it's just one more step. I just have to take one more step and it's going to bring me closer to my goal. And no matter how hard you have to go, you just keep going a little bit at a time. You have to go at your pace. You have to do your thing. But if you keep taking one more step, you will achieve that goal. You will be in the hunt. And if the conditions are really difficult, like the day I passed Steve was over 30 below and um, you know, I got caught on a sheep hunt. You guys will see this two films from now when we hunt sheep and, and toke. Um, I didn't even bring a jack on that hunt because it was an August sheep hunt. And I had my system. I had a system that warranted me not bringing a jacket. So I didn't bring a jacket and we got caught in blizzards. Uh, essentially the entire hunt we were in blizzards and the gear, gear is everything. So you, okay, so you have to be physically fit. You have to have your mind right. But beyond that, if you have the wrong gear, um, not only are you going to be miserable, but you're going to be risking your life. And I've heard this 
numerous times, guys, clients, they write these huge checks to go on sheep hunts. Sheep hunts are not cheap. And then three, four days into it, sometimes even one or two days into it, the clients give in. And they say, you know what? I'm here. I, I climbed a mountain. I'm proud of myself. I'm ready to go home. And the guides and the outfitters try to talk them out of it because they know once they're home and in their warm, cozy bed, they're going to regret it. But um, guys do throw in the towel, and it's because they're mentally not prepared or they brought the wrong gear. So your system is everything. And, and um, I've worn it all. I've worn everything out there right now. And right now I'm wearing Kuyu gear. I wore Sitka for a very long time. Sitka makes very good system. Um, Kuyu makes a system that's quite a bit better than Sitka's, in my opinion, and 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 kind of by fact, if, if you ask me. And and uh, and also Kuyu, I think, makes one of the better whitetail deer hunting systems out there. Even though he focuses on mountain hunting, I think his gear is very very good for whitetail deer hunting. But it's you know it's not bringing anything cotton. It's bringing wool socks and wool underwear and wool t-shirts and wool undergarments, wool middle garments, bringing a down series so that you can insulate and then bringing a, a, a nice outer series and then, and then rain gear. And it's these systems that allow you to adapt from, you know, you kind of have to, you know, the, the merino next to your skin is pulling all your moisture away and it's getting all that stuff away from your skin so your body can still thermal regulate. The down is basically like, you know, it's almost like your hiking sleeping bag. You keep that in your bag, you use it almost like a mobile sleeping bag when you're sitting glassing or you get caught in a storm. And then your rain gear is basically like your mobile tent. You know, you have your tent back down on the mountain or in the ravine. When you're climbing or whatever, you get caught in a storm, you put your rain gear on. And I've been caught. I got caught. I just wrote about it, but I got caught several years ago in the Chugach Mountains. A buddy of mine and I, we killed a big doll sheep. And we wanted to do it in kind of two trips and just enjoy the days of hiking. So one day we hiked all the meat, the cape, and the horns out. And the day that we hiked it all out, it was 70-some degrees and sunny. It was beautiful. We both wore really light pants, really light fleeces. But the next day, we had to go in, and a storm was brewing. And some other sheep hunters even stopped us at the trailhead, and they said, hey, where are you headed? And we told them. And they said, man, there's a blizzard going on right there right now. And, and we looked. We could see the pass that we needed to head to. And we saw it looked a little stormy. We were like, ah, it doesn't look bad. Well, we both almost lost our lives that day because we were wearing the wrong gear. If we had the right gear in our packs, if we had the right gear on us, it would have been just a cold, miserable day. But, you know, that's where the mental fortitude comes in. The mental fortitude comes in when you're safe and you're somewhat comfortable and you can keep pushing the stupidity and the arrogance that we went through that day, you know, we almost lost our lives because we thought, you know, we were tough enough that we didn't need that extra gear. We would just muscle through it and get to the tent. And that was really bad. Yikes. You know, it's, I, to a much lesser degree, but I've definitely dealt with these types of gear decisions on different backpacking trips in the mountains and things like that. And it's such a tough, it's a fine line you have to walk right between making sure you have the right gear, uh, but also maybe not, weighing yourself down in different ways or it's always that choice. Um, and then lots of times you don't ever learn that lesson until you learn it the hard way. So, but I think you're absolutely yeah, right. Absolutely. You're, you're a hundred percent right, but you can, you can bring the right system. Um, I, you know, I could talk about this until I'm blue in the face. You can bring the right system and have a very, very light backpack. Uh, this last November, I spent a month on Kodiak Island, uh, bow hunting brown bears, and Sitka black-tailed deer, 
And I basically packed as though I was going on an August sheep hunt, and I was completely fine. And we are in, anybody who knows anything about Kodiak Island, it is, even when it's nice out, the humidity is really high, so it's just zapping the energy from your body. And I'm telling you, the gear that I had was very light, very easy to carry, but I was toasty warm and, and safe in all elements from blizzard to, you know, full-on, you know, winter storm, and it, it was pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah, no, it's great that the gear now has advanced how much, uh, over the last five to ten years to the point where now people are talking about this having a gr- a good layering system. You know, as you mentioned, and for me, you know, the Sika gear laying, layering system has been awesome, and it sounds like Kuyu has a great system, and, and others are coming out too. So it's nice to see that the hunting industry is is picking this up and you know applying the technologies that used to be just in the mountain world now to the hunting world. So it's it's good to see that. Uh, but absolutely. Uh, Related to what you just mentioned, you know, Kodiak Island, hunting spots like that, or Alaska, different areas in Alaska, for an audience here that's listening today that's mostly whitetail hunters, I imagine you would recommend, or I guess my question is, would you recommend to these whitetail hunters to ever try to go out west or up north on one of these mountain hunts? And if so, you know, what's your pitch? What's your pitch to a whitetail hunter to try something new out in a different, bigger, woollier wilderness? Um, it's, first of all, it's a must. I mean, a must. It's not even should you or shouldn't you. And I, and I have a deer friend of mine that I hunt deer with and he has only ever hunted white-tailed deer. He has zero interest in hunting anything else. I try to talk him into it all the time and he has never budged. But in my opinion, it's an absolute must that you need to at least branch out and go hunt caribou or, and not mule deer. I'm not talking about going on a mule deer hunt. That's, that's, I mean, it's definitely different, but it's still too similar in my eyes. Um, you know, maybe a high country mount, uh, mule deer hunt, something like that, but going out and doing a caribou hunt or an elk hunt, something like that, I think is, it's just really going to broaden your horizons. You know, there's, there's all these scoring organizations and there's, and category organizations like the super slam and they have, you know, the, the 29 super slam, then they have the grand slam of sheep. They have, uh, the super excuse me, the super 10, all these organizations, you know, some guys think, and maybe some guys, some hunters approach it as a checklist and they just go around and, and other hunters see this and they say, I don't want to be a checklist hunter. But the way I look at these groups, the super slam, the grand slam, the, the super 10, these organizations kind of force you into going on different hunts, learning about different animals, seeing different habitats and going through completely different experiences, you know, for a whitetail hunter to go hunt moose or to go hunt black bears or, uh, you know, Rocky Mountain elk, something like that, it's completely out of their comfort zone. It's a whole new set of skills. You're seeing a whole new group of animals. And you can't, you can't sit in your chair at home and say, ah, I, never, I never really want to hunt an elk. You know, I never really want to do it. I never really want to hunt a caribou. You have to go there and see these animals and experience the hunt, experience the mountains, experience the mornings and the evenings and the calls and, you have to experience it all. Then once you're there, yeah, maybe it's still not your cup of tea, but I would venture, uh, I would venture to guess that you'd get pretty addicted. Yeah. Yeah. I just experienced a little of this myself last year when I went on my first elk hunt. And, uh, to your point, it's something that you really don't know until you try it. And I'm so glad I did because, or maybe I'm not glad, but (laughs) because I know I'm going to be running out there every September now to the mountains and, and spending money to go on these trips, but it's, it's incredible, an amazing experience. And I know, Dan, you're you're gonna try some different type of hunting this fall too for mule deer, so I'm excited excited for you on that front too. 
I'm I just uh, put my vacation days in today at work and although it's uh, although it's gonna be flat land the, the the area that I'm hunting has no trees in it it's in the sand hills so it's gonna be spot and stock and I'm expecting to fail but um, you know the next year or the next time I go out there I'll be uh, more educated on on what I need to do to be uh, to be better for sure. No, I'm sure you'll be successful. You'll be successful. Just go slow, man. Just go slow. Bed those guys down and go slow and quiet. Just slow and quiet, and you'll you'd be amazed. You can get into 18, 19 yards on those guys. Don't don't worry about it. Just go slow and be quiet. That's uh that seems to be the consistent uh, theme for uh, for what I'm hearing from the other people that I've asked as well. So I'm I'm pumped, man. I can't wait. Uh, I'm excited yeah, for you it, too. It, it, it's important. I really think, um, like you said, you went elk hunting last year. Now you want to go every year. I just, if you're a hunter, I, I think you owe it to yourself. You don't owe it to anyone else. You don't own it to, to Pope and Young or Boone and Crockett or Grand Slam or anyone else. You don't owe it to anyone, but I, I think it'd be a travesty if you went through your entire career of hunting and not, not experiencing the mountains or not experiencing other wildlife. I just, I think it'd be a travesty. So, so Donnie, for someone who's listening right now, and you have given them the kick in the butt they need to head out west or head to the mountains or head to Alaska, wherever it might be, and chase something different, for that whitetail hunter, what is your, if you could give them one single piece of advice to leave them with here today to go on that new adventure, what would it be? Oh, man. Um, well, everything is possible, right? You can, you can do... Um, you know, you have to be honest with yourself and what you're capable of doing. You have to be honest with yourself of what your budget is. Of course, um, we're all limited by budget and we're all limited by what we can do. Um, and so, you know, obviously you can put your mind to it. You can do anything, but if you, you know, really find out where your interests lie and find out what you want to do, do you want to go on a guided hunt? Do you want to do something self-guided? If you're looking for, like, if I was going to coach somebody into going on their first big adventure, they want to do something on their own. There are a few books that you can read, um, you know, entitled things like Hunt Alaska on Your Own, uh, you know, Hunt Alaska Now on Your Own. There's there's a few books out there that kind of lay everything out. And, and uh, that's how I started hunting because uh, I couldn't afford guided hunts at all when I first started going to Alaska, which was my freshman year of college. And so I started going on self-guided caribou hunts. So I did as much research as I could. I got the best backpacking uh, equipment that I could afford at the time, and I just slowly started building up, building up all my gear, and and then bettering my gear. But I would literally fly up to the Arctic Circle in Alaska. I'd have a pilot fly me out there and drop me off all by myself, and I'd get after it. But you know, I just did my research. I prepared myself with the best gear I could, and I kind of went out. And now, if you have a few extra dollars in the bank and you can do this guided, I think that's even better. Um, but yeah, I think a first step for a lot of guys would be, you know, a Western black bear hunt, an elk hunt, uh, a caribou hunt up north, something like that would be, you know, the first kind of baby steps, but you can definitely can do this stuff. You definitely can do it and you can do it on your own. It sounds really scary maybe at first, but, um, there's a lot of information out there. And if you, and if you're smart about it, it's, it's something that's definitely obtainable. Great, great words of advice. I think, um, a lot of it, like you said, it's just, you know, finally believing that you can do it, making that decision, and then putting in all the work and preparation to make sure that you take advantage of that opportunity as best as possible. And that's all you can do. So I love it. 
Now, yeah, absolutely. Now, Dan, we're getting closer on time here, but do you have any final question for Donnie before we wrap things up? I mean, it sounds to me like you've hunted a lot of animals. You've had a ton of experiences, um, more than the typical, you know, more than myself who I've only hunted turkey and whitetails. That's all I've hunted in my entire life. And I'm now starting to branch out into other, you know, other hunts and whatnot. But, and we know that not all uh, game is the same. You have to take different strategies to hunt different animals in different locations. But is there a common strategy, a thread, or, or some kind of tactic that can can go to hunting all wild game? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and it, and it's it's uh, and I'll say this: it's it's first of all, it's going to where you know the animals are, right? So many people. Um, I used to I used to goose hunt with a guy that never set up his decoys in fields where geese would land and he never killed geese. And occasionally I would goose hunt with him just because he was a nice guy and he's super nice. But whenever I wanted to kill geese, the first thing I did was leave that guy behind. And it's kind of the same thing. If you want to kill a big mule deer, you have to go to where they live and you have to find the animals. You have to find the habitat, find the animals. But number one, um, you know, kind of how we go about everything is to stay back find the very best habitat, stay back, let your binoculars and your spotting scope tell you the story. Don't burn your calories, spreading your scent all over the place and burning your calories up. Same thing with whitetail hunting, right? We use trail cameras. It, you know, you don't go out to your whitetail property tonight and walk every square inch of it and be like, yeah, I didn't even see a deer. I didn't even, <laughs> I saw a bunch of deer, but I didn't even see a deer. Yeah, buddy, because they're all long gone. So it's the same thing. It's using your glass from afar, let the animals tell you the story. Watch them even for, like, one of my very favorite things to do if I'm on a sheep hunt or a bear hunt or something like that. I love to get there two or three days before the season, find the animal that I really want to focus on and hunt because that usually seems what what happens to me is I pick an animal and that's what I go after and try to pattern them. Same thing with whitetails. Like, you know, the trail cameras become our binoculars, if you will. And there are a few places like the Milk River and a few other places where you can sit back and glass a bean field and start watching trails and things like that. But stay out of there, hunt smart, be quiet, and um, and I think, you know, you'll start to find a lot of success. It's um, it's uh, When I first started doing spot and stock with mule deer, I tried to make the stock as fast as possible because I was so worried that they were going to leave, that they were going to move. And when I started slowing down, I couldn't believe, even where areas where there's very little cover, I could not believe how close I could get to these deer by just moving when they weren't looking and just taking my time. And, and uh, I, I arrowed a stone sheep several years ago in BC, and it took me about 11 hours to get into position on that stone sheep. And I basically belly crawled, either on my belly or slightly on my back, crawled into position. And I ended up arrowing this stone sheep at 49 yards down in the alders at the bottom of the mountain. And it took me forever to get there. But I knew if I just took my time, I could get into those alders with him, pick my spot and kill him. And that's what happened. And and I just think if you stay back, use your glasses. And then when you go in, you go in smart, slow, and quiet. Um, you can really you can really become a, a really good predator if you if you follow those steps, I think. 
I'll I'll tell you what, I think that there's a lot of listeners right now who have got a sore hand because of how many notes they're taking from this conversation. Uh, yeah. Donnie, you've given some incredible advice, some awesome stories, and uh, I can honestly say that of all of our podcast interviews we've done, this is probably my favorite, and we're very close to it. This is this has been great. So, yeah. Thanks, so, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And you know, for everyone out there listening, you know, first off, you know, what should they be looking forward to seeing from you in the coming months or year maybe? And then where can they see this stuff and, and what should where they should go to get more information? Yeah, absolutely. You can you can see uh you can purchase the Rivers Divide right now on Donnyvincent.com. Um we have a film right now that's out in T V and and cruising through the theaters called Terra Nova, Three Days on the Islands, uh hunt uh, where we hunt for woodland caribou. It's a really fantastic film. Um, we're just wrapping up a film right now on an Arctic grizzly bear hunt that we did um, two years ago. And uh, and then after that, we have a doll sheep one coming out uh, entitled Coke. And uh, so those will be coming out. They'll be on TV. They'll be touring in theaters. And they'll and they'll eventually turn into DVDs that will be for sale on DonnieVinson.com. But we're on Facebook and all the normal places. I don't I don't live a virtual life that much, but I the guys that I work with do that stuff. So. Um, but yeah, we'll, we're just going to keep filming. We're going to keep telling stories. We're going to keep pushing the envelope and, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of really cool work coming down for our listeners, for our listeners out there. What are, uh, what TV station per se are, uh, are your shows going to be on right now? They air on a sportsman's channel. A lot of guys look on there and they look for us as a TV show. We're not a TV show. They just play our films as feature presentations, usually on, a you know, a Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, something like that at 7 p.m., and they'll they'll just air them as one-off shows. So you're not going to be able to find a quote-unquote TV show on there. But as we finish films, we give them the Sportsman's Channel, and, and those guys air them. And, and then, like I said, they also tour in theaters, and there's also some, some other stuff that are that's coming up. But, yeah, that's – I apologize. So thank you for that. But, yes, it's on the Sportsman's Channel right now. Okay. Perfect. Well – I hope you keep doing this for a long time, Donnie, because you're doing some great work and you're telling some damn good stories, and I enjoy them, and I know many, many other people are. So thank you again for joining us. This has been absolutely terrific. No worries, man. I really appreciate you guys having me. I know you have a lot of really cool people to pick from, and I'm, I'm humbled that you took time to, to talk to me, so I appreciate it. Thank you. You are very welcome. Hopefully we can chat with you again soon, Donnie. All right. You guys have a great day. Thank you. All right, well, that is going to wrap things up for us here on the Wired to Hunt podcast. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Donnie as much as I did. I thought he just had some really great thoughts and advice to share. And I probably could have kept talking for two or three hours, but of course we couldn't do that. But like I mentioned, I would love to have him on the show again, and hopefully you guys would too. That said, as always, if you did enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. It takes a quick second, but it really helps us out. So thank you in advance for doing that, if you can. Speaking of thanks, we'd also like to thank our excellent partners who helped make this show possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Ridge Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Also, be sure to visit wiredhunt.com slash episode 18 to view the show notes from today's episode. And that's where we'll include links such as links to Donnie's films, his website, Facebook page, and things along those lines. Finally, thank you to you. Thank you, Wired Hunt Nation, for everything you do and for taking the time to join us. And until next time, have a great week. And as always, stay wired to hunt.
Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.